The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Click. And we're live. It is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m. Uh, our guest has vanished in a puff of smoke. Uh, we're going to try to bring him back. Uh, a puff of poodle hair. A puff of poodle hair. But while we're bringing him back, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you the story of Fluffy Poodle Shirt, which has now arrived the, clo the good folks at Clothing Monster came through. Um, uh, the other day, I got a, uh, a UPS shipping notification, and Fluffy Poodle Shirt is here, as ridiculous as expected. Um, it's not uh, that ridiculous. I don't think it's that bad. Hi, Pete. It's not that bad, Ben. I, I know that I know that like Pete has to take issue Wait, with Pete, dog treats generally. Yourself. You don't think it's bad? No, I don't think really? it's nearly as. See, Pete now is here, but he can't unmute I kind himself. of like this. I like, this like, like the Pete's pantomime. Um, Pete, refresh Pete's your struck. screen. Um, refresh your screen. This shouldn't be that hard. You're becoming oh like turning God. into Sarah Longwell, where. Uh, no, that's audio issues, Ben. Like, well, we're having audio loud. issues. With oh, him I right guess now. that's true. Um, but it's because of muting. Uh, I do want to point out to everyone who is pointing this out that no fluffy poodle shirt is not nipply. Um, and that okay. should be reassuring to Virginia Heffernan. I um, think it should be reassuring to Pete, too. I'm not understanding why Pete's, he finds Pete's it so. issues with fluffy poodle shirt, uh, with, with poodle, with dog shirts were never really about their nippliness. I think they, you, they really... I I can't imagine that that wasn't at least part of the calculus. I mean, it I, is it is like one of the most distinctive parts of well, let's ask the him. dog shirts. Once, once we can get him to... Maybe if we, if we is have... Is the eye Pete, placement. Okay. Unmute He's muted. Now, struck. Do you know how to do that? No, you're still muted. Why can't you unmute him, Ben? Uh, I can't. It doesn't work. Oh, my God. No, it's it's one of the things about being mute, muted, Pete, is that we can't hear you. I think uh, so maybe we should do this whole conversation no. with yeses and nos. Can yeah. you hear us? Hey, Pete, what do you think of Ben's poodle shirt? Oh. <sighs> Hi, Ben. Hi, KK. How are you? <laughs> What do you think? You think the fluffy poodle shirt is just boring? I do a little bit, honestly. I mean, it just like lacks oh, wait. the. Pete oh, wait. is Pete's now back. unmuted. Hi, Pete. Hello, Pete. I'm unmuted. Can you hear me? We can. I blame the damn dog. You know what the dog looks like, Ben? <laughs> the poodle. The po I've been. I've been. I've said this now seven times, and half my margarita is gone out of frustration, <laughs> and I blame all of this. The first four minutes of technical difficulty on that dog. It looks like the giant tip of a Q-tip split from which the nose of this dog is emerging. Oh, sort of oh like that the, makes that, it much that, more that opening scene of Alien, where the, like like the alien is bursting forth from, you know, we just had a meal on the deck of the you know, grimy spaceship, and Ben's laughing, and then all of a sudden he starts, and this, this dog is now emerging from his abdomen. That's not, I think not, what's actually happening. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's what the dark voices in my head say, Ben. No, that's, uh, no. It, uh... I, I, but I find it to be, like, less, um, 
I, I find it to be less, uh, I don't know. It, I, I do agree with you. It does look like that. Like, you're not wrong. Fred, Fred's point in the chat that this, now this I comment can't... might say more about Pete than about the dog. Yeah, this <laughs> yeah. is the Everybody doesn't idea. see darkness like like aliens splitting. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Ben, this is the entire idea of dog shirt as Rorschach test that we've discussed numerous so times on the show. Well, shoe bill uh, shirt also showed up today, and so um, I think you're all like we're, we're and now as I promised, clothing monster, we're putting in a new order now. As soon as fluffy poodle shirt arrived, so we're going to order corn on the cob shirt and bison shirt and sloth shirt. Um, we're diversifying, uh, but you know we can't have. Does like, Tammy ever consider like taking your credit card away? Like I just um, I, you know, Tammy knows that you know uh, there are certain things in a marriage that are just non-negotiable, like dog shirts. Have um, you, have you, by the way, speaking of other means of generating income, have you seen and had access to or set up this new tip jar that Twitter is doing? No. You mean people can tip me on Twitter? Yeah. That seems really ridiculous to me because. Why? Like, You're a content creator, Ben. No, I'm I'm a shit poster mostly. Yeah, um, but, <laughs> but someone might want it. But, but come on. Like you can like. So now you can literally click on this little button next to my name and like Venmo me some amount of money. Can I? This would have been more useful by your when I was and... like taking on Hertz than after taking on Hertz. Can but, I click on a button on, on Twitter and demand money from you? Because that would no, be really useful ben. if I could like go to Rick Grinnell's Twitter feed and like demand Ben, there are other sites for that. I want $5 that's... <laughs> <laughs> Which Rick Grinnell may be on, but <laughs> leaving, that, leaving that whole line of conversation alone. Yeah. No, I think um, that's... Uh, so anyway... Um, all of this is a very long way in of uh, saying that we are not allowed to have fun anymore. Um, but uh, we are allowed to have P. Alley, a.k.a. Peter Strzok, um, uh, a former, uh, you know, uh, guy who did things in government, now current guy who does things outside of government. Uh, and Pete, uh, you are a... Um, have been watching Tucker Carlson. And so I guess the first question I have is, what sin did you commit in that you have been sentenced by what competent authority to spend any of your time watching Tucker Carlson? And I just want to say Tucker was invited on the show today to rebut Peter or respond in any way he saw fit. He did not respond to the tweet from the In Lua Fun Twitter feed okay. saying that he's welcome here. Tucker, if you're in the Greek chorus, speak up. We'll bring you on screen. You're welcome anytime. Uh, so it, it was actually it popped up on my Twitter feed. Some um, Caroline or I think she's uh, married now, uh, so has a hyphenated last name, but does research on sort of social media misinformation, disinformation space, some of the more academic data side of things, but had posted a series of screen grabs of Tucker's show last night, which essentially sounded like a, a, a greatest hits of, of Russian and before that Soviet propaganda about their peaceful intentions towards Ukraine and why the West would ever want to, you know, be, be you know, what's, and I think the, the screen grabs, you know, there was a series as he was talking about what and why on earth the United States would want to involve itself in Ukraine. There are a series of chirons at the bottom, one NATO seems to exist to torment Putin. Another one, how would intervening in Ukraine help U.S.? And then a third, Putin just wants to keep his Western border secure. And I don't know that any, I, first of all, I've never seen any major that. U.S. I the, broadcaster I saw ever the, I saw the Western take that tone, even in an opinion piece, in such a shockingly consistent pro-Russian almost to the point of laughably propagandist sort of statements. Um, and then in my high dudgeon, I started looking around for, for Tucker's other history. And what I hadn't realized, 
I had remembered, and I wrote about it in my book, when Donald Trump gave that crazy um, statement when he was being interviewed about Montenegro and about the Montenegrins being a very aggressive people and, you know, you, you, they get angry and all of a sudden you're in World War III and why on earth would we ever want to um, come to the Montenegrins' defense? And, you know, two, observation, two observations to that. First is there, there's no goddamn way in hell that Trump could find Montenegro on a map. I mean, it, it, there, there's no chance that could exist. And so the question is, well, who, who's putting this thought in his head? Why, why is it that he came to say Montenegro, aggressive people, we're in World War III if they do something? And as I was looking last night, I said, well, holy crap, that was a Tucker Carlson interview. And so Tucker Carlson asked him in the context of Montenegro, well, I don't see why my son should go you know, need to uh, need to fight there, I think, or, or something to that effect. And Trump responded the way he did. And so there's this pattern of these these wildly pro-Russian sentiment um, statements that are coming out that in some ways don't make a lot of sense to me. In a lot of ways don't make a lot of sense to me and seem to revolve around Tucker Carlson for, for whatever reason. And I don't know, you know, is this just an outgrowth of his you know, some deeply held isolationist belief that we really shouldn't be, you know, focused on exporting democracy abroad, which is kind of what I thought a lot of conservatism, at least when I was growing up, stood for. Um, but it, it, and I don't know to what extent the, the Murdoch empire is either encouraging this and or just because Tucker's such a rainmaker for them, letting it go. But it was, it was a disappointing thing last night. And just, I, I, I don't understand why we're at the point we are at where the Republican Party has cozied up as much as it has to Russia. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, nowadays, you know, the Democrats, they're, they're socialists or they're communists. So they, you know, there's this schizophrenia going on in the, in the right fringe of the Republican Party, which may not be the fringe anymore, that, you know, they can't decide whether Russia is good or bad and socialism and communism are good or bad. They probably don't know what any of those actually mean. But as a talking point, there's this very schizophrenic, you know, Russia, they're good white Christians like us, and Putin is just an admirable strongman, or, you know, communism and socialism, bad, and that's the squad, and we should stay away from it, and they're going to make, you know, they're going to take over everything, and we'll all be communists if we don't watch ourselves. But it's a very odd thing, and it was, again, just for me to, to see that um, last night, just, you know, I'm increasingly getting very antsy and angry about um, where I think the country is going. And I think, you know, I mentioned I was texting with Ben looking at uh, Bart Gelman had a great um, essay in The Atlantic saying things that a lot of us have been saying, but Bart writes and speaks very, very well and eloquently and essentially talking about the, the, radically, the, the radical efforts underway to undo our democracy, particularly when it comes to voting and to the extent that 2020 uh, was a dry run for future electoral, not just shenanigans, but future insurrection. And what bothers me the most and what I've become increasingly aggravated with is there is, I, I, I get the sense of a, there is a feeling of lacking a sense of urgency that people don't understand quite how bad it is and how fast things are moving. And, you know, I'm sure folks who are, you know, passionate about climate change have probably felt that way for a while. But, you know, I always assumed you know, in the army and the FBI, there was always the sense of, you know, having a sense of urgency was like to not do that was a cardinal sin. Like there are, if you don't move, particularly post 9-11, if you don't do something, the costs are so high and the consequence is so large, you have to approach things with just this constant sense of a continual pressure to advance and resolve and do, because not to do that, terrible things would happen. And I increasingly kind of am looking at our domestic environment and increasingly feeling that way. And the only people that seem to care are the ones who are energized on the on the far right. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm frustrated. I'm 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 nervous. I am, you know. And I tweet, and people ask the re the, the relevant question. Okay, well, you know, you got us scared. Great, but what should we do? And what, what should we do? Get go out and vote. I mean, I'm in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe lost to Yunkin, and some of the best data I've seen after the fact. It wasn't that he won all these swing voters. It wasn't that he, you know, took all these people who had voted for Biden. It was just that the people who were Trump supporters got out and the people who supported Biden didn't. It's just or did, just not at the same it did, not at the at same the volume. Same right. So that level. so that that engagement right. That's that's absolutely right, Ben. So the so the engagement, you, you, you had a very dedicated right wing, far right wing base 
acting with a sense of urgency, acting that this matters, that this is critical, that they're going to make the effort to do it, and a comparatively greater sense of apathy. And I don't know how, you know, folks will say, well, you know, just sounding the alarm, you know, that doesn't do anything. Well, I, uh, how, how else to overcome apathy? And I don't know the answer to that, but I see a tremendous amount of apathy. And I know, you know, and this spreads out to, you know, people frustrated with the Department of Justice and the pace of the investigations into January 6th or whether or not anything's being done to look at investigations of criminal wrongdoing of the Trump administration and what the January 6th committee is doing and whether or not they are actually going to get anywhere by the midterm elections and, you know, the, when, when they split for break before, if it flips, that new group is sworn in. And, you know, Mark Meadows now essentially saying, fuck you to the committee after playing footsie with them, knowing full well that, you know, whether or not intentional, he's just drawn out that game such that I, I think he can play it and never have to testify. So again, to that sense of, do people understand the gravity of what we're facing? I, if they do, I don't think that is translating to a sense of urgency that is merited. And I don't know how to, other than, okay. you know, I, I have to say, so let's just say like, for example, that I understand that this is, this seems incredibly urgent to you. Um, let's say that like, hypothetically speaking, this doesn't seem as urgent to me. And in fact, that for example, things like the loss of Roe seem incredibly urgent or other types of kind of like restrictions on, so like, there's a couple of things. One is which like in a world in which you can, you're not in the army and like you cannot stand up and like kind of go and actually do something or it's unclear what it is you might be doing if you were going to do something. Uh, the attention and the time and the panic that people decide to kind of, they have a limited, like let's you have a limited amount of panic that you can give to like any type of, thing um everything can't be the thing that makes you kind of stand up and do something so i'm curious like what why this thing and what is so impending about it that makes you so certain versus like any other domestic concern or anything else kid i think it's the same thing at the end of the day i think we're talking about a an effort underway to undermine our democracy in, in the most fundamental sense of that term, such that the people who are elected and are certified into those elections do not represent the popular vote. And what concerns me when I see all this kind of jiggering of state election boards and concerns about whether or not they would actually, you know, put forth electors in the presidential sense that do not represent the results of that state election, you know, I, I don't know what happens if that occurs. But I think to your point about Roe, and I, you know, Ben, rely on you for this. I mean, like, what, what is the, the, the best polling data about the percentage of Americans who believe that abortion should be safe and lawful for, for women to have access? I, I think it was in the, in, in the mid 60%. It totally depends how you ask the question. It, it'll vary a lot, but it's a solid majority. But so that solid majority are facing, you know, to Kate's point, I think a very real likelihood that if not Roe, some of the related uh, abortion related um, holdings are going to be struck down and you're going to have states independently implementing restrictive laws. Now, how does that relate to this? That relates to this because if you can imagine a an election where Hillary Clinton won instead of Donald Trump won, well, then how does the Supreme Court look in that case? I mean, what we've got three how many how many three or four how many justices did trump appoint to the supreme court three right so you know that and and if you go forward and you say okay well then what if this election then comes up and the election is undermined to the extent that again we have republicans taking over state boards and legitimate voiced reasonable concerns that even if the state voted a slate of democratic electors that the state board might forward republican ones well, then how does that impact the Supreme Court justices? How does that impact justices that are being appointed to circuit courts of appeal and district courts? How does that look in all the state after state after state if the Supreme Court returns, you know, and let's say, well, it's a state issue, let them decide what the laws are. Well, how are those state 
you know, legislatures and state judicial bodies being formed? And are they being formed in a way that represents, you know, an actual democratic um, result or or, or image? So so I want to, we've come a long way in a small number of minutes from Tucker. Um, And I want to explore the connective tissue between the uh, observations about Tucker Carlson that started you down this doom casting spiral and the, uh, the, the substance of the doom casting. Um, uh, Tucker Carlson has a Vladimir Putin fetish, apparently, and a, you know, he's just a, a nice man who is concerned about the Western uh, Ukrainian, Western Russian border thing. And, you know, he sounds like uh, a, a fellow traveler talking about the Soviet Union. Okay, what does that have to do with Glenn Youngkin? What that has to do, I think, is that the people who are motivated the most to participate in our political process at this point are what you see in the Virginia gubernatorial race. You see the most efficient and effective mobilization in the right, and in particular the far right. And that far right consumes most of their, and Bart Gelman makes this point, with a couple of vignettes of of people he interviews, that population largely consumes its information about the United States and about the world from this right-wing ecosphere where Tucker Carlson is probably the most reasonable middle-of-the-road person you're going to find in that environment. I mean, it includes, you know, all the OANs, and there was there was an astounding. I forget. I don't think it was OAN. I forget. Newsmax maybe had a had a, a magazine cover that had Putin on it, which you know, and I forget what the caption was, but it was similarly just astoundingly pro-Russia and bad. But the point being, as people see. As the people who are motivated to participate the most in our political process in the United States right now, the place where they are getting their information is coming from people like Tucker Carlson and others who do not have a problem with Putin and beyond that see him as admirable. And I just, at the end of the day, you know, I don't think it is something as sophisticated as saying, well, you know, Putin's an autocrat and an authoritarian. He is, you know, he's against the, you know, kind of stands against the ideals of Western democracy and what we in Western Europe and the NATO alliance are trying to, you know, encourage and advance around the world. And, you know, therefore, I I don't think anybody thinks about it that deeply. I think it is simply a function of Tucker and Fox are right. Tucker is right. Why should we do it? You know, there was a strong isolationist bent to Trump's message in 16. I, I assume that will be the same in 2020. I think Carlson is echoing that. I think there's always been, you know, a an isolationist streak in America for a long, long time. But I, when I when I see isolationism combining with condoning authoritarianism, that's really concerning. I mean, it's not like, well, we should be isolationists and let, you know, France and Britain and Italy and they're great, Germany, they're great, they can take care of it. It's not. It's Russia's great. And I don't know how, I, I, I don't know how that sort of unholy alliance came to be. And I'm sorry, my dog is going nuts downstairs. But All right. So I want to argue you out of this. Um, not because I necessarily just think you're wrong, but because I think you've got some unexamined assumptions here that are worth examining. And um, proposition number one um, uh, Glenn Youngkin cannot, does not win with Tucker Carlson viewers alone. He, in order to win, he has to attract a lot of mainstream people. Um, and Glenn Youngkin, uh, you know, if, if, and so the fact that Tucker Carlson loves, you know, has a bigger problem with Joe Biden than he does with Vladimir Putin, uh, is not by itself enough to say that there's a a problem here other than in the, you know, his radicalization of a certain set of 
followers as well as the moral choices that Fox News is making, but that's not the concern that you're expressing. Um, and so my question is, do you have, we don't have any evidence that Tucker Carlson's Vladimir Putin fetish is moving any voters from a, you know, a sane column, whether it's a Democratic column to an insane Republican column or from a sane Republican world, a sort of, you know, bulwarky kind of world into an insane world. Um, uh, and so I guess my, my first question is, aren't you conflating two sets of variables that may be more independent than they look? So variable number one is things look pretty bad for the Democrats these days, and we may be looking at a very ugly set of midterms. And fact number two is that Tucker Carlson is saying some crazy shit. And you're kind of subconsciously assigning a little bit more cause and effect to those two things than, uh, than they uh, perhaps warrant. It's possible that they're both true and that Tucker's impact is mostly to reinforce uh, crazy assholes in their crazy asshole views. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I think, you know, the, the conversation hopped around and I don't think I was trying to imply that Tucker Carlson is the reason why Youngkin got elected. I think the, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, McAuliffe had a lot of flaws in his campaign. And I think there were a lot of things that Youngkin did that were smart, that were simple, and that, you know, reinforced the idea that, you know, politics is local and that they, they ran a very localized campaign in Virginia, whereas McAuliffe was much more of a national sort of felt like a national democratic sort of set of talking points but and that is separate and distinct uh, you know I was just talking about what you know to the extent if asked why does this matter with Tucker it matters to Tucker that this base but we're when we talk about that swing in the middle again it's like Clinton versus Trump that swing in the middle shouldn't matter your, your base is what should really you know call the at the end of the day and that it's the lack of motivation on the base getting out on the one side and the base really being engaged and motivated and getting out on the other side that I think decided the, the Virginia gubernatorial results. But, and, and I completely agree with you, I don't think there's a cause and effect of Tucker's embrace of Putin, meaning that therefore this occurred. So I, I don't wanna, if I said I didn't intend to and, and don't mean that there is a causal relationship there. What concerns me about Tucker is the people who are voting, uh, the, the motivated base, are listening to him. And that when you look at, you know, what Tucker's doing and, and you know, kind of echoing all this, this, this Putinism, you know, he went over and talked to Orban for a week or two, right? I mean, I thought he traveled. And so it's not just Putin. I mean, he's, there's this, this fascination with, you know, shockingly enough, very white nationalistic, you know, authoritarian leaders other than Putin out there who he's, you know, spent some time with. But I think the concern at the end of the day is all of these things go to, there, I, I don't know that I adhere to the idea. I have a difficult relationship with the idea of American exceptionalism. Uh, on the one hand, I believe a great deal about the the, the democracy is the the best form of governance and most fair that we've come up with in in the world. But at the same time, I think it's extraordinarily arrogant to assume that the American form of governance must fit everywhere in the world. So, I, having said that, though, I do think that this idea of what America stands for beyond a domestic civics idea, but what America stands for and should stand for in the international environment should be as a champion of democracy, should be as a champion of human rights, should be a champion of the idea that every person is entitled to their belief and their opinion and that whether it's you know, voting for who they want to, saying what they want to, loving who they want to, worshiping who they want to, those are ideals that we should have in America and that we should be actively encouraging abroad. And that when you get people like stinking Tucker saying, oh, well, NATO's just a thorn in, in Putin's side, it reduces this idea of American identity and kind of creates this equivalence, or if at least not equivalence, it removes this idea that the American experiment is something special. It removes this idea of an American identity on the global stage and what we should be standing for and what we should be willing to commit resources and lives to defending and advancing. And that's the danger, I think. I, I, I don't, you know, at, at the end of the day, if you got all these, you know, you go to January 6th and you interviewed all those people and say, well, what does America stand for? 
What would they say? If you ask Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or Matt Gates or well, she's Louis not coherent enough to answer yeah. that question. Well, I, but but what do you say? What does what does America stand for? It stands for resistance to the Rothschild space laser, doesn't it? I guess, but okay, great. So okay, I will grant you. We'll we'll go. Space Force will des will destroy the Jewish space laser. What does America stand for? What's their answer? I don't think you get an answer. I, and, and I don't know how. Really? Because I think their answer probably sounds a lot like the stuff that you just said. Whether or not, like you can, anyone can say what Amer America stands for. Like they can make it sound shiny and nice. There's like a difference between doing that and like you really, actually. But you really think if you, if you went to, to any of these folks, the, the intelligentsia, such as it is, and said, okay, what are. What are the American ideals that we should stand for in advance on an international environment? Some of them, well, wow, we don't want the immigration going crazy on us, so we need strong borders. Yeah, I mean, look, I would but, say that their, their conception, to the extent that we can just go by what they say, um, they have a very strong conception of American freedoms that are more about guns than they are. I was just going to say that. They're, more they're about all guns. about, yeah. And their own Well, speech. and I would say what's what somebody in the course, I don't know who it is, is that white Christian values are, you know, a, a hallmark of, of, of a lot of this. Well, so could I, could I just like interject really quickly, which is just to say that, like, I see what you're saying, but I do think that, like, in fact, what you're taking for granted is that they see any type of need to impose, like, to bring, there's no sense of kind of needing to bring their there's no sense of needing to bring their values to other people as much as there is a protection of their values at home. And like, that's why they, I, kind, I, right? I, like, I think, I think protection of values at home is a code word for losing power and influence in their environment to the other, whatever that other is. And usually it's a changing. And this is another, and like, you know, going to Bart Gelman, read, read Bart Gelman's piece in the Atlantic. I want to plug it because I thought it was great. He puts. Talk he he talks about a group um, who is doing research, who is looking at the, they call them the one-six insurrectionists. I think that's kind of a wrong term because I think they're only looking at the people who have been charged, not the thousands who descended on the Capitol. And they went through and they took all the data of these people who were, who were being, um, who were there and being prosecuted. And they said, okay, well, it must be from really super pro-Trump voting areas of the country. Nope, that's not it. Well, they really must be from really poor white areas. Nope, that's not it. And all these assumptions about what they might be trying to correlate with who showed up and who stormed into the Capitol, nothing made sense until the one and only thing they looked at is people who were facing a comparative decline in their position of power and influence in their communities. And where there was a delta there, there was a massive correlation. So people, and again, look at, they're all white. People who are in, I mean, not all, but the, the overwhelming preponderance of the, the group, people who are in environments who saw their power being undercut, being diminished, that was the one and only sort of data point that correlated to who was showing up at the Capitol on January 6th. Oh, so okay. to the point of like, I want my values, I, I think it's not so much I want my values, it's my values are under attack. And my power yep. and my values and my ability to maintain that, I see slipping away by fill in the blank, the blacks, sure, but, the Hispanics, but, the Jews, the whatever, the Koreans. I mean, it's it's anything but me. Right. And so I do think there is. And, and I so I do think there is a both a racial and religious aspect to that, that it needs to be called out for what it is. So I, first of all, agree with all of that, but I don't go from that to. uh you know, to, I, I don't link that to what Tucker is saying about Putin, the fact that Glenn Youngkin won and create a sort of uh, a, a larger stew of doom, which is what you seem to be doing this week. I look at that and say, uh, first of all, that's exactly the demographic mix that we've all we all would have assumed if you look at the rhetoric of this group of people um, over a long period of time, I mean, we know what this 
part of the Republican Party, which has taken over the entire Republican Party, represents. And so we are in a situation in which one of the parties uh, represents, you know, the more or less the things it has traditionally represented, and the other abandoned traditional conservatism and represents uh, a a kind of revanchist, uh, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly racist, um, uh, uh, quite xenophobic, isolationist, authoritarianism. Uh, and uh, in that situation, the two-party system has a kind of unhealthy uh, quality, which is that both parties eventually lose in, and both parties therefore eventually win in the two-party system. And this is not a party that you can necessarily trust with power at this point. Um, and I feel like that is the state that we've been dealing with for the last five or six years. And I'm not sure I understand why you're flipping out and panicked about it today. Um, because as opposed to, you know, maybe when we might have needed an insurance policy, for example. Well, there's, there's <laughs> always time for an that insurance was a joke. policy, Ben. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so go ahead, Kate. You said you were going to say something. I don't. I, I think what I am concerned about now are the things that I'm seeing in the states and particularly on the, at the state level, the entities that control and monitor and report the voting results, particularly of the presidential elections. I see things going on that are concerning to me in a just a purely anti-democratic way that there is the prospect, and, and you know, Bart talks about this, where results which represent a, a, a democratic choice by the states, by the residents and the population of the state, may not be those which are forwarded up as the electors. And if, if that happens in any one state, but let alone three or four or five, what, how do we respond to that? And I don't, and I also see, like, I, I think there's every indication, and again, we're, we're hopping all over the place, what concerns me, you know, when I see Steve Bannon, you know, six months, seven months ago, he's giving a, an argument, and I've talked about this some elsewhere, you know, talking about not making the less the, the mistakes of 2016 with the administration, having his cadre of shock troops ready to go that from the jump in the next administration, they're ready to take all these Schedule C employees that don't need Senate confirmation and they can appoint them across the, the realm of the government. And that in 2016, they lost time because they didn't understand all these vacancies that were there and that they really needed to infuse selected loyal people into those jobs to make change. That concerns me. The second thing that concerns me is I think they have come to a radical understanding that absent control over the coercive power of the state, they aren't going to be able to do what they want to do. So if you do not have the Department of Defense, if you do not have the Department of Justice and the FBI and to a lesser extent the intelligence community and the national security apparatus, you're going to have your hands tied some. And even crazy, abusive, burn in the annals of history hell, Bill Barr had a limit to what he was willing to do for the president. And I think, certainly Steve Bannon, if not sort of intuitively somewhere in Trump's you know, mind, he understands that we need somebody much more malleable than that at the helm of the Department of Justice and at the head of the FBI. You know, if you know, CIA, fine, whatever, but I mean, anybody who's carrying a gun, <clears throat> we want somebody there who can control it. Um, so, so those things, those sort of lessons learned, that sort of understanding and, and acknowledgement of understanding that those were limitations, I think then, you know, gets to gets to a point where it, it, it adds into this concern because things you might do to shore up against that, things like, you know, the, the voting rights, you know, the, the whatever, the, the John Lewis Amendment or whatever it's called, all these things that you might be doing right now to put guardrails in place or to shore up the defenses that we have, Congress isn't doing that. Okay, Nobody's but hold talking on. about that. Hold, yeah, but... But hold on. I'm just like very confused. Like, do you really think like, is it really like you actually think that like Tucker's involvement in like in like the things that he's saying are because of he's getting something from the Russians to say that? 
I like, can't like, explain. Like, I don't and, understand and, like how one. And to so one no, you no, think no, no. And this is great because it actually it, it it actually gets me to something where I have a professional ability to <laughs> speak about with some authority instead of talking out. Yeah, my what, ass, you, what I've been what, what, what I've been doing for the past thirty nine minutes. But hey, hey, you know. But from no, but from a CI perspective, I guess the question you have to ask is. How is it that there are so, I mean, when you look at those chirons last night, you could not pick a better set of Russian talking points. It wasn't ad, it wasn't argumentative. It wasn't puffing up their chest. It wasn't some heavy handed GRU hacking attempt. It was a very smooth, you might as well put the Russian ambassador talking about their, you know, what, what, what advantage does the U.S. have to defend, you know, people of Ukraine that's so far away? Is that really America's sons and daughters? You really want to place them for, for what? For this? We just want peace. I mean, it's it's these these very polished. Who could object to that sort of? Yeah, point, but like, but like, why are they picking them? Like, why? Like, why? Or like, well, who is writing them? I, and if it's like, if it isn't okay, if it's what you're saying, what it sounds like is kind of like an accidental backing in. But why? Of the, why is it? Why is it? Do, do, is Tucker saying that about Taiwan? Is Tucker saying that about the student demonstrators in Hong Kong? Is Tucker saying that about the South China Sea or the Spratleys? That's, that's a great Or point. the Philippines? Like, yeah. I, I mean, is he saying that about the, the Chinese like, incursion into, the, into, into their border with India? I, I mean, it, it's, it's, so I, what's I just, your hypothesis it, it's a, about it? I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. I it like, is an odd... It is an odd... It, 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 it doesn't... And to the extent of that broader question of when you take the next step and saying, well, who's putting these ideas in Trump's head? Because he doesn't know where the fuck Montenegro is. Is it Tucker? Is it Hannity? Is it Murdoch, Fox, writ large? And if so, why? And as a, again, getting to the point where your listeners would actually say, well, this is, this is what we want to hear Pete talk about because he, you know, has some ability to speak in an educated way about it. To the extent that these are absolutely something that you would want to hear the government of Russia advance and that their intelligence agencies routinely seek to seed in journalistic outlets around the world, how is it that it has found such a fertile field in the form of Fox News? And, and why does nobody care? And... and so let's now step outside your role as FBI counterintelligence agent, because you are no longer that. And let's posit a citizen CI concern. We don't have the tools of the FBI, but as, as citizens, we're entitled to have the same concerns uh, counterintelligence, counterinfluence, counterinfluence operation concerns that the FBI would have and call CI matters. Um, what does the public get to do? Like, what does, if we say, okay, Pete, you know, stop doomcasting Bart Gelman's article and talking about Glenn Youngkin, but what do we do about this problem? The, you know, it's not a, um, like, Tucker's saying these things that should make any counterintelligence professional concerned. Um, we don't we don't have the tools of the bureau, but we do get to ask questions. Um, what do you do about it as a as a, as somebody who doesn't have access to the coercive powers of the state? Stop being apathetic. Get a sense of urgency. Go figure out what it is you can do to get people to vote, to sign up to vote. I mean, at the end of the day, this is all about the vote. If, 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 if Pennsylvania or Michigan or Arizona is a 51-49%, it's going to be a shit show in 2024. If it is 70 to 30, it's not. It's not. So like, the question is, like, yeah, sure, there may, be, there may be some states that are truly that close. If you were to mandate you know, 100% voting of the eligible electorate, there might be some that are that close, but there's some that aren't. So how you what was the choosing, turnout in Virginia? I don't know. I mean, it was. Was it, it was, was it so, so the, the good news? Then? It was. It was the good news no. is it was much higher than historically. I think it's ever right. been in an off year. But the bad news is, to Ben's point, when you look at okay, yeah, it was greater, but then the 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 right, the far right, greater was this compared to the the the, the Democrat 
greater, yeah. which was that. So if this is your, your mean, then you know this is still a problem. So what you do, get involved and get this, get this. Okay, well, I'm not Those on the Arizona far right are approaching like these issues as if this is a matter of existential importance. Those on the left are not, in my opinion, in my observation. Well, that's because they're being paid in like energy drinks and other and like Lululemon. Well, sure. And until, you know, like, most of them, you know, if they're right and they're, they're, they're all of a sudden, you know, they have unwanted pregnancy. Either they live in a state where they can get safe legal access to abortion or they have the money to be able to pay to go somewhere that does. But for the most part, I, you know, and, and I don't it, the, all of this disproportionately impacts people who are not wealthy people who are not powerful and in sadly in many cases i think those are the constituencies that aren't engaged in the same rate and manner in the political process for a whole bunch of reasons historical racial reasons all kinds of things and i'm not you've got many more experts that you've had on your show than me to talk about that but the short answer get involved start approaching this with everybody you talk to as if this is a matter of urgency sit there and say, if we don't do something now, there's going to be a problem. And I don't, I, you know, I spent 25 years being as calm and cool and just flat as possible because that was the ethos. And you see me worked up and that should concern you because that's not normal and usual for me. And I'm really that concerned. All right. Tom McGuckin has stowed the Listerine and the floor is yours. <laughs> Ben, you've got the best echo chamber. It's very, it's great. Yeah, I know. Peter, I always like talking to you. In fact, everybody. Um, listen, uh, let's get on to the Ukraine itself, though. Uh, I was at a party last night. Uh, there was some drinking. But uh, two of my friends are from Ukraine. And uh, they're attorneys here in Santa Fe. But nonetheless, um, they have family back in Ukraine. And they're super worried. And they said two things to me that I, I, I want you to respond to. One, they felt that money that the West, NATO, U.S., uh, with the exception of these javelins, uh, pretty much gets siphoned off. It doesn't go to the army. It, it, uh, it gets siphoned off to the oligarchs and uh, people like that. So uh, as far as an army is concerned, they said this that the first hint of a real invasion, the Ukraine army will just sort of melt away, somewhat like the Afghan security forces. And um, they brought up the little green men that came in. Remember that when, they, when Putin went into Crimea? Okay, uh, that, uh, that they didn't fight it. They just, uh, you know, come on in. So I guess my question to you is, this sort of has to do with Tucker, but more with just Ukraine. Uh, do you think that that's a reasonable assessment of, you know, look what happened in Afghanistan. This damn thing just <laughs> fell apart. And uh, do you think Ukraine will just fall apart, just sort of melt, if Putin really decides to do something? And then, two, getting back to Mr. Carlson, what would he say about that? Um, so I'll caveat this by saying I am not the expert on Ukraine that people like Alex Finman, or even Fiona Hill and others are. My perspective working Ukraine in a counterintelligence context is that there is certainly the amount of corruption and intrigue that swirls around Ukraine is certainly as, 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 um, as evident as it is in any of the former Soviet states as it is in Russia. So there is a great deal of, my, in my experience, corruption, intrigue, you know, the black, the ledgers that allegedly showed the payoffs to Manafort, all of that um, is a very advanced form of sort of corrupt intrigue as I've seen anywhere. I think it's important to remember that this is about Ukraine and Russia and Ukraine and Russia and not the United States and not Western Europe. And Ukraine and Russia have a very long relationship. And certainly Ukraine has experience of Soviet occupation of being a, you know, a Soviet Republic. And so I don't think this is something that the average Ukrainian citizen is going to walk into without a sense of the past and an understanding of the past. 
I think it is very hard, you know, last I saw there's some argument whether it was you know, 95, 98,000 troops, you know, with the potential of going up to about 120,000. It doesn't matter what the hell NATO does or the West does. It to If you get to 120,000 size um, advance, particularly if you go through Belarus from the north or have a multi-front advance, they're not, even if people stood up and fought, they're not going to be able to withstand that. I think there is a difference between the population and their motivations and their affiliation and association with Russia when you talk about Eastern Ukraine versus Western Ukraine, particularly in Donbass and, and Crimea, than there is from the Western Ukrainians. But at the end of the day, if the Russians go in with a force that size, I don't, I, whatever Ukrainian forces do or don't do, I, I don't think they're going to successfully withstand that. And again, having been occupied by the Soviets, I think they understand well the notion of biding time and what resistance, effective resistance looks like in the face of something like that. Is what Tucker would say? I, 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 I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think Tucker Carlson is guided in his statements on air by any grand strategy. I think he is there to get clicks. I think he is there to say anything that will advance the narrative. I used to think he was interested in running. I don't know that he is. I don't think he's dumb, but I don't think what you hear him say is a reflection of whatever his internal beliefs are. I think he's just playing, playing people. And so he's definitely, by the way, he's definitely not stupid. Um, right. If you, um, if you go back to him, his period as a writer at the Weekly Standard before he became a, uh, um, uh, you know, he worked with a whole lot of people that are bewildered yeah. by what he's become, including, you know, the Bill Crystals and and Jonathan Lasts, you know, people who right. we which, all know which, and, and love. And, and I, he, um, I agree. He, he is not a stupid person. He's a cynical and evil person. It's quite different. Exactly. Which makes it all the more disappointing, because if you're not stupid, then you therefore are manipulative and cynical and evil. I, and, I will just say one thing that that Alex Vindman has really uh, made a point of about uh, Ukraine's military. Uh, it has become a much more capable fighting force over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, it is uh, the question is not whether it can resist a massive full throttle Russian invasion. The question is. Uh, whether fully armed with the appropriate materials, uh, it can make such an invest in an invasion a very painful and uh, protracted uh, process. Maybe not the initial invasion, but the uh, the you know whether you could end up with something that would be extremely costly for 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 Putin. And this is you know. Russia is not a country that is actually economically capable of sustaining a major military confrontation over a long period of time. It's yeah. got a GDP the size of Italy. Right. And it depends, I think, on how brutal Putin wants to be and can be. And I'm not convinced he can be. It's not going to be like the Chechens. You know, the, I think Russian, the prospect of Russian atrocities in Ukraine are, are very are much more severe in terms of a response than, than Chechnya was. But Paula, mm -hmm. the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain the psychology of people acting in bad faith or not urgently. And I'll put it into two groups. Like I'll put Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz to one side, who I don't really understand why they feel the need to like degrade and deface themselves as like Yale and Harvard Law School graduates who clerked on SCOTUS and make themselves look like idiots, at least to the smart people that they were educated around. I don't see what's psychologically advantageous about that. And on the left, I mean, I made this point the other day, the fact that to me, a 21 year old female liberal, I think Bill Crystal is more on point on the urgency of democracy than politicians who are Democrats in the House and Senate comes off quite strange to me. And I, I think they know that living in an authoritarian regime isn't fun. So I'm not sure on the left where the lack of urgency comes from. Yeah. Um, are you are you one of the people in Michigan, by the way? Yes, that is me. Yay, I'm go blue. Big, big 10 yes. champion, 
University of Michigan Wolverines playing in the BCS. I just have to plug Michigan, so go blue. Um, I think for Holly and Cruz, it is a bald, purely political set of motivations. They are, in my opinion, playing to what they see as their base as a means to both maintain their electoral status within their states, as well as to pivot and access those areas of power that they might get outside of their states. I don't think there is any ideological basis in their minds for what they're saying. I think it's got to be the most awkward holiday party when every Supreme Court justice gets all their former clerks together and Holly and Cruz walk into the room and they're the turn the punch bowl in both appearance and spirit. Um, I, 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 so, I have to say, I do think that John Roberts, who is a man of, of a lot of dignity, uh, I mean, you can say what you want about his politics or his judicial philosophy, but he's a very dignified fellow and he has a sense of decorum and he must cringe every day about Josh Hawley. Yeah, of course. And I think, and a lot of people, a lot of the seniors, I I think a lot of elder statesmen in the Republican Party, Cruz is always an asshole from what I've heard and read and heard from others. And that that was pretty transparent from day one and nobody likes him and that is what it is. But I think a lot of Republican elder statesmen, you know, John Roberts among them, but also people more on the, the legislative side and the pure political side put a lot of effort and their imprimatur on Josh Hawley. And I think have been extraordinarily disappointed by his little fist pump to the insurrectionists on the morning of January 6th and what he's become. Um, I don't have any sympathy for him. It's kind of tragic. But again, I think their motivations are just purely cravenly political. And and, you know, what that says about a current political process that, you know, they could have been somebody like, you know, any number of former senators that's not the political just to be clear ben your statement about roberts and holly is that holly served was like one of his clerks holly holly for the chief justice and it wasn't yeah no no it wasn't even that long ago i mean and and, yeah i mean it couldn't be and and, and two sorry no, no, no. I was just going to say that one of the things that you have to realize as a Supreme Court justice, frankly, is that you are obviously going to be like benighting people to go out and like either someday be Supreme Court justices themselves or like to do exactly what Josh Hawley did. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I I mean, I'm just saying like, uh, I've just like been in the hiring process for clerks at many stages and some and I had I've had many friends that have clerked at the Supreme Court and like it's just like a it is it is that it is I, I just think that like Roberts had if he didn't know then he feels misled like I I mean like or he doesn't care like or he knows that that might be what he's like creating and he like is at peace with it he's just not he, he knows I, that's all I guarantee there's no way he's at peace but to Ben's point, like much like Tucker Carlson, what that shows, I mean, Cruz and Holly are really smart. And they're really smart. All right. So, so and, here anyway, is, so. so here, uh, Christopher Argerus gets the last question today. And then I have on behalf of Genevieve Delaferra a piece of business to conduct with Mr. Strzok. <laughs> All right. So I'll try to give it short. Um, I was trying to think of a metaphor for what. Uh, Trump and Devin Nunes are up to with their um, uh, <laughs> social media venture. And I thought of uh, the producers, you know, the, the <laughs> musical or um, movie. Um, so I'm thinking that this is a grift. Uh, this is just a, a way to put money in their pocket. Whether it fails or not, they're, they're, they're going to attract all these donations. Um, it can't seriously compete with Twitter or Facebook or whatever the other, uh, all the other ventures that have t- taken those guys on and failed. So what do you think ultimately uh, Trump and Nunez are up to with this uh, uh, Trump media enterprise, whatever it's called? Money. I, I, I do agree. It's grift. I think they are motivated. I mean, there is some there. There is a certain amount of goodwill. And I mean that in a in a legal sense. I, the Trump name 
in the context of something you might bring to a multimedia platform does have some value because there are all these knuckleheads following him who will gravitate to a to a platform if it works. And so I, I, I do think there is money to be made there. I think it is there's this entire ecosystem. I mean, look at it. You know, Sidney Powell allegedly is under investigation for like fundraising for all these like you know, fight back and all the cracking lawsuits about, you know, challenging the vote and whether or not she was taking the money and siphoning it off. And all these people, everywhere you look, everybody's got, you know, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the January 6th version of a nutritional supplement that they're trying to sell, whoever it is. So I, at the end of the day, I think it's uh, all about money and grift. I think it always has been. I think at the end of the day, there is no sort of message other than we're you and we're fighting for you and you need to get up and fight and so sign up for my newsletter and you know donate five dollars here i don't know the producers is very highbrow i would probably go with dumb and dumber a little bit although there's a certain you know nobility in his romantic pursuit um in the movie but it's it's not serious there's nothing serious with donald trump at the head of an enterprise and devin nunez is the ceo or CEO or whatever the heck he's supposed to be. That's not that's not how you build an effective enterprise. That's all show. It's all grift. So yeah, it's pulling their money or soon parted, right? All right. I will just say that the producers, for those of you who've never seen the original movie, the producers, the producers, I believe, is the first comedy about the Holocaust. Um uh and um it was made in 1968, uh, which is remarkably soon after the end of World War II. Um, it is, it's not really about the Holocaust, it's about Hitler though. Um, and uh, it is brilliant and, um, uh, and incredibly transgressive in a way that uh, Josh Hawley could never hope to be because he's not imaginative enough to transgress. Um, uh, he's, he's busy and, with his and, porn and his video games. Yes, that's right. Basement, I mean, right? he's busy porn, giving porn away. <laughs> he's busy giving away too much Allegedly. about his private life. He's leaking. I thought he was like, leaking masculinity out of his like, he, ears. I mean, he is. I, I mean, on his little chair, on his little tiny little but infant. He would not have the stones to wear a fluffy poodle shirt and i'm just saying God, that. don't don't and don't don't no no do not no 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 no, no, no. that is he not he doesn't want you to conflate lead lead with your with strengths your and, 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 and wait we're, we're going with uh would you think is this a more poll? highly of yep. josh holly if he put on a fluffy poodle shirt yes or no all right we're gonna do that and the following uh, question would you feel more vindicated if josh holly put on <sighs> a poodle shirt yes or no <laughs> um, um okay um so far no is kicking ass on this <laughs> um all right i um uh uh gdf uh Pete has instructed me to not let you off the show without a commitment of a ch the name of a charity and an amount of money that the In Lieu of Fun, the Greek chorus, can raise for that charity that, uh, if it happens, you will uh, do Where's the Lie in a dog shirt on In Lieu of Fun. <laughs> I have a charity. You want an amount do you want it? Wait, just link my tip jar, Ben. Just, just <laughs> yeah. link that. I <laughs> See, and this no, I got to think about this because there's a, there's an absolutely there are a hundred worthwhile charities that I would do a lot for. I do not want to put a price on it for the in lieu of fun chorus and audience. Oh, okay. I, I so you to, you don't have to do a. We'll just raise money. Uh, and um, and then you'll do it whether we make a target or not. And that's fine. Uh, oh no, there there's a there's a ground floor to putting on a, a dog shirt. I, I can't and believe like how it's easily. I, I I don't know that it is in the five figure. It might be in the six figure range. <laughs> just in, in complete transparency here, and it's all for a good cause. But you have no you have no sense oh, of my. Oh, I'm sort of, so uh, this feels this is motivation. 
like a six figure <laughs> amount to put on a dog shirt. Like would that I had such standards for anything I do in my life. <laughs> like, maybe maybe really we need to make a dog like, shirt like, NFT. <laughs> And auction really, it off. Yeah. I don't think well, there's like a single thing I, I, I would like six I know artists <laughs> who have been extraordinarily, extraordinarily gifted artists who have been successful in the in the NFT environment. But no, I I, I need to think this through because uh, if <laughs> no, I if I giving, delve into if no, I no. delve into I either the charity fundraising and or and or the dog shirt world. It's going to be a fucking show. Next time you come on the show, you need to have thought about this and be ready to name your charity. Or we'll do it offline and figure it out. But think about it. Think about it. There we is so going... much opportunity for goodness here, Pete. Think about it. Hey, it's a, it's a great cause. And char- I mean, it's a, it's a great charity. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of great charities. But I'm... That is the I. That's easy. It's the it's the dog shirt. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Um, <laughs> Pete continues to be irrationally threatened by dog shirts. Uh, the results of the poll are quite striking. Eighty nine percent of you would not think better of Josh Hawley if he put on a fluffy poodle shirt. I just want to say you're all wrong, because if Josh Hawley were actually willing to put on a fluffy poodle shirt. It would show he is capable of humor and self-mockery, which are two things that we did do not know about him today. And I would personally uh, uh, at least be able to say, well, look, he's an anti-democratic asshole, but he's capable of smirking and giggling at himself. And uh, that's at least half a percent redemptive. Uh, we are going to leave it there. <laughs> Pete Strzok, you're a great American, even if you're in a panic uh 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 attack today um yeah you seemed uh, very nervous we, we uh, will yeah, be it's not it, it, you know existential threat need not generate panic it's just deep concern we're going to be back tomorrow we're going to be here uh with uh uh claire Belinsky. Uh, uh, who will be joining us uh, from Paris. Um, and uh, that will be 22 hours, 53 minutes from now. And until then, Pete. Until then, Kate. Oh, you're asking <laughs> me, oh, shit, I get to do this? I didn't know yeah. I was, I didn't know the audience got to do it. So in lieu of, since we can't have fun anymore... Instead, we are all going to find out in our communities what we can do to no, get people no. engaged. No, with... you're all going to go and watch oh, the damn. classic 1962 movie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. <laughs> <laughs> instead, r- watch the classic 1968 movie. Uh, the uh, Producers. Right? The Producers. It is... Uh, actually manages lo these many years later to be genuinely shocking uh 